The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world. And with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. Today, I'm very excited to have as my guest, Mike Eccles. We'll be discussing one of my favorite topics, human capital. And before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Mike. He is a global thought leader, author, and executive vice president of strategic initiatives and director of the Human Capital Lab for Bellevue University. Mike's three books on human capital investment are favorites among C-level executives around the globe. And Mike's groundbreaking work on measuring the value of learning investments on corporate human capital has garnered Bellevue University several prestigious honors and awards. And he just returned from speaking at the SkillSoft Annual Users Conference. So we'll get some fresh insights from Mike about that event. So Mike, welcome to Quantum Business Insights. Good to talk to you, Olivia. Thank you. So talk about hot off the press. Just yesterday, you spoke at the SkillSoft Annual Users Conference. And there were a 1,000 corporate executives in person and many more listening online. So there's definitely an interest in this subject. What is the focus of the SkillSoft conference? And what was the audience reaction to your comments about human capital investment? So this is a conference where SkillSoft, which is a provider of education, particularly e-learning modules, and is the largest provider to corporations of such learning uh, modules, has an annual conference with their customers, and we happen to be in Las Vegas yesterday, and actually I'm still here, and then they link electronically to the global clients. I sat last night at car at uh, MGM Grand with a, a, a corporate executive from the UK, and we talked about learning. So the SkillSoft conference brings together thought leaders that help these learning leaders in the audience understand and gather new information. My particular topic is the one that you mentioned in my books and from the Human Capital Lab, is in measuring the impact of learning. The Cato Institute has estimated that human capital is uh, $740 trillion worth of of capital in our economy help measure the impact of our learning. And that's a big percentage of the cost of doing business today, right? It's like 70% or something? 60 to 70 percent in some companies it's even higher. So when you look at the, the really high flyers like Google and Apple and 
Uh, it's all about the people. It's all about innovation. Mm. So what, how did people respond to what you were saying? Were they excited by your research? Yes. Yeah, so I'm kind of the out there guy in the learning community. Uh, I talk <laughs> about, I talk about uh, for example, Larry Fink last, uh, last several weeks wrote a letter to all the CEOs of Standard & Poor's 500. And his message to those leaders, uh, this is from BlackRock, the investment house, uh, his message to those leaders was, we need to be less short-term. It's not just about uh, stock buybacks and dividend redistribution. It's about investment. And he particularly focused on capital investment, hard assets. Uh, but I had that in my speech. So my, my message to the learning leaders was to try to help them, equip them with information that they can then go to their senior suite, their senior executives, particularly the C-suite, about the need to more aggressively reinvest in the most important asset in our organizations, our people. Yeah, and that just naturally is a longer-term investment, right? You can't have a training that's going to turn around a profit within a quarter. Isn't that true? No. So. Yeah, it is true. And it's true for our society as a whole. You look at our public debate about investment, uh, not to lecture about it, but we as a society have become very short-term focused. I mean, you can look mm-hmm. at our stock market. Look at, look at the markets in the last few days. You have immense amount of money rushing in and out of individual stock. And uh, Mr. Fink's message to the CEOs of Standard & Poor's is, Look, this is a longer-term process. This is an investment cycle. And in particular, for the learning executives, it, as you point out, it is about a longer-term return, but it's, it's a high-impact, very important asset in our corporations. So how do we get them to shift? I, I was reading something, and maybe it was through a link you sent me, about getting the, the asset managers to do more long-term investing, and then they could possibly shift the trend? Is that true? Yeah, here's, yes, here's, here's part of our problem. Uh, and I'll go back to the financial market. Our financial markets have a very transactional focus. It, it's buying and selling security. So when you look at the cycle time of how long uh, institutions are holding stocks, you look at the tenure of CEOs, we've become very short cycles. And so mm-hmm. to your specific question, there's two classes of assets in organizations. There's the physical assets, which the Cato Institute estimates is, is $45 trillion in the U.S. economy. That same article estimates that the human capital is $740 trillion value. Now, the accountants yeah. and, the, and the CFOs don't measure that. They don't measure the assets of the human capital. In fact, this Cato report was the first one I've seen that someone has attempted to do that. So the answer to your question is, all of our tools and, and, and mechanisms for measurement are about the physical assets. There's almost none about the human capital assets. We've got to get those, and this is my message to Skillsoft audience yesterday, we've got to get those tools into our organization so we know what is it worth when we make those investments. And that really, I think, speaks to this whole shift away from manufacturing into technology where people have to be much more educated to even do the most basic job. And I think because people are so specialized, they're harder to replace. So um, it sounds like 
it was a good place to deliver this message. I just hope it changes because I think we are seeing a lot of companies struggle because they don't know how to value their human capital. And I was sharing a little bit with you before the call, but I worked for a couple financial institutions where there were mergers and acquisitions and they lost so many good people because they didn't take the time to let people know what was going on and what to expect. It was just all about selling the portfolio, but the people were sort of left to take care of themselves. And so all the good ones could quickly get jobs in other places. And I think that was the biggest expense to that company long-term. And uh, many of these banks failed after a short time. So I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, your your observation about our companies today, I mean, if you, it, it, just give an example. If if a building burned down at Google, and heaven forbid that such a thing would happen, uh, the, how would the markets react? Well, there might be a short, and I'm talking now about financial markets, so they might have a short-term reaction. But if at the same time or, or a, a, a contrary event, if the senior leadership of Google or the senior leadership of Apple, for example, even though Tim Cook is under some pressure to use something, to use that $160 billion of cash he has, uh, they have. Uh, but the point is that how would our markets react? Exactly to your point about the mergers. The answer is if the senior leadership of the companies that are the innovators and have high value in our financial markets, were to announce that they were to depart, it would have a significantly greater impact on the value of the stock than a building burning down. Yet, we do not view those uh, those assets, the people assets, as something that we should have an investment strategy for. And to your point, uh, you brought up the point about manufacturing. Interestingly enough, we're talking about manufacturing returning to the U.S. economy primarily because of the cheap energy that we've had uh, out of the Bakken in Texas and, and so forth. The irony is that when you look at job markets, the, the positions that are most difficult to fill right now are manufacturing positions, and they're precisely because of what you described. Manufacturing is no longer about brawn, muscle. It's about intelligence, and the manufacturing segment of our economy is having a very difficult time finding the right talent to fill their position. Wow. So it's no longer just if you can watch a conveyor belt. You really have to be able to operate equipment and computers. I guess that totally makes sense. Uh, and even, I think, agriculture is kind of, at least the high-tech agriculture is moving that way as well. So all these sort of low-tech jobs are becoming high-tech, in sounds like, in every sector. Well, you, you, know, you touched on another one that we think of historically as kind of a low-tech activity. I live in Nebraska. I'm in Omaha at the Delta University, and we have an agricultural economy all around us, and the combines and the planning equipment of agriculture today is GPS-driven. So farmers actually map their fields and their GPS locator regulates and dispenses things like fertilizer and and gives information about even individual acres and sections of land. So that's true in the manufacturing arena. When you discuss the manufacturing jobs, they are significantly computer-controlled. So the interface with logistics systems, numerically controlled processes, it's really ironic that we've talked about it as kind of a savior for our economy, that we're going to get manufacturing back around this low-energy economy, 
But the jobs, some of the most difficult jobs to fill in the U.S. economy today are manufacturing jobs because they're really high tech. That's so interesting. And and your comment about farmers, I'm now imagining that a farmer can just computerize his combine to combine to get up and go do its work at five in the morning, and he can sleep in. Now, probably that's not true. Well, those, but yeah, but those, those farmers like to sit in those cabs. They're all air conditioned now, and they've got stereo in it. Their iPods are playing, and their GPS. <laughs> But they have, but they have a screen there. They, I mean, they literally have a computer screen that's a GPS locator, that's that's controlling such things as uh, the dispensing, and so it's very, very computerized. Why? Well, I bet you there was some resistance to that in the beginning, thinking about people who may just be used to doing it one way, and then now having to to stay competitive, having to embrace all this technology. That's really interesting. Well, so yes, I was going to switch to another question. So please finish your thought. Well, I'm just Um, saying about change. That's one of the challenges for us. And and you and I have talked about what should individuals do? How do they deal with their lives and manage their lives in this rapidly changing environment? And so the point that you were asking, why don't our organizations operate in this focus on human capital? Because it's difficult to think like your analogy for the farmers, it's difficult to, to move and change the way we view the world. That's a challenge for all of us. Yeah, so we have this high unemployment rate and then this huge demand for skills. And it sounds like what you're talking about is that the way to connect one to the other. So we'll get into a little bit later about what your book, which I can't wait to talk about. But I want to kind of go through a couple other thoughts first. So... Everybody uh, looks at the demographic data. We know that baby boomer executives are retiring at a faster rate than they can find executives to replace them. So um, why is it so hard for company leaders to see this, that this is important to their own company and, and really plan for this? Well, I'll tell you, I, I started to talk about the demographics issue as I got into human capital about 2005. My first book is ROI on Human Capital Investment. And I was actually speaking in a number of conferences around the country. And it struck me uh, what occurred at one of those conferences was a response to that demographic information. And here's what the individual said. He said, yeah, there may be fewer fish in the lake but we're just going to be better fishermen and we're going to catch our share of fish by being better fishermen. And Mm. that struck me. I I remember that uh, comment, that story, ever since that that gentleman said that. And what that is, is that's a saying that, yeah, I realize there are going to be fewer fish. That's this overall what I'll call the macro data. And the demographics are compelling. I mean, they're just overwhelming. There's about a 20 million person gap between baby boomers and the next generation. But what individual executives are doing is looking at it in a micro sense from their own perspective. So they're looking at it and saying, yeah, there may be fewer. I get that. And any knowledgeable person that reads it sees that the market supply is, is going to decline. By the way, baby boomers are leaving the U.S. workforce at the rate of 10,000 a day. And a projected really? Oh, yes. And, and with that is all that experience leading 
But the point, back to your point about why don't individuals see it, it's, it's back to the issue that they don't see the overall a, a, a stake, they don't see their interest in the stake of the overall supply. All they see are their own recruiting jobs. And by the way, there are currently 3 million unfilled jobs in the U.S. economy, open jobs, unfilled. And really? It's the skills, yes, it's the skills mismatch that you're talking about. Well, so we're just about up on a break, but I wanted to um, share. I read something somewhere. I don't know how this fits, but I'd love to get your take on it. And that was that companies are also finding it difficult to find young leaders who have a kind of a cutthroat or a more competitive style. And they think it's because they grew up playing a lot more collaborative games, and so they're naturally more collaborative. Have you heard anything about that? I haven't heard that specific comment. Uh, I, I think basically that's a dribble uh, to get my, my true opinion up on the table. Our world <laughs> is more collaborative. Our world is, is more about teams. It's not about uh, hierarchical command and control systems. It is about collaboration. Mm-hmm. So the positive thing about all the game playing that the young are doing is that they have developed an experience of collaboration, and that's going to be very important in the future. So we certainly can come back to this if you need to go to a break here. Yeah, let's do that because I think uh, it's really a good topic to, to tie into this skill building idea. So my guest today is Mike Eccles of Bellevue University. We're talking about Human Capital Lab. You can read Mike's blog at www.learnprosper.com. He posts the news and then he has a blog on there called Buzz Today where he kind of evaluates the news and ties it into some of the topics we're discussing. So we will be back in just a minute. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kirk Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rudd. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show 
at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and I'm with Mike Eccles of Bellevue University, and we're talking about human capital investment. And before the break, we were talking about the demand for workers and how there are 3 million open jobs in our economy, but because of the need for technical skills, we don't have the people really with the right skills to fill these jobs. And then we were talking about the need for more collaborative skills and how the younger generation through video games and just maybe the general nature of the way they're learning, they're naturally more collaborative. And and so, Mike, I'd love to get your take on why do you think that's important and where are we going with this as far as becoming a more collaborative economy? It's a great question, Olivia. The reality is that we're all becoming distributed. If you, if you want to get an indication of a drive down in your business district and look at the in, the amount of lease space that's available, offices that are not occupied. And the reason that's occurring is because people are doing exactly what you and I are doing here today. You're in Philadelphia. I'm in Las Vegas. We've connected around uh, our passion for the topic, and we're motivated to have a conversation that we're sharing with your listeners. We're not sitting. There's no boss on either one of us. We're, there's nobody sitting and saying, this is what you have to do. Eccles, you've got to be on this, this call uh, at this time. So the point is that our world is changing because we're more distributed. We have more avenues for connecting. We have more avenues for information. So if you, want, if you look at the young, uh, and, and many of us, it's not even just the young. I'm, no, I'm not young anymore, but I use mobile devices. We're connected in life. I just got a message from my colleague in Minneapolis, Minnesota, about a discussion with Wells Fargo yesterday. So the world is connected in a very different way than somebody coming into an office at 8 o'clock in the morning and sitting at a desk with a boss over their shoulder. So that the older generation, particularly older leaders, my advice would be it's not a command and control society. It isn't an authoritative way of saying thou shalt do this or that. What is happening is our whole society, and it's not just the young, have many more freedoms and flexibilities to get information, to influence other people. So our young are working in a world that's connected in ways that sometimes the older generation scoff at, and why are they on their iPhone so much? Go to a restaurant Mm -hmm. and watch people come in and sit down and work on their mobile devices. So my point is that that whole distributed capability requires collaboration. The reason you and I are in this conversation at this moment is because we're motivated about the topic that we're talking about. It's not that somebody telling us that we have to do this. We're motivated to do it. And the young are right. similarly self-motivated. They happen to express it in ways around games. And they're connected and they build community around their devices. So it's a very different world that we're operating in. And it sounds like it's it. Those are good natural skills for the way business is going because businesses can't can no longer do it all themselves. You know they have to sort of more be more specialized. And so it it, uh, it sounds like a a good fit that the younger people will be able to move into these. So what are some companies that are doing a particularly good job at human capital investment? 
Well, we work with uh, a number of corporations. I run an entity called Strategic Initiatives. And Bellevue University is a very interesting educational institution. It's a nonprofit, private institution. And that when it was founded in 1966, the founder said it will take no public funding. So we don't take government money for operations. We don't even accept grants and, and fellow, uh, uh, federal money for uh, research projects. We're all funded by our own endowment and by the way that we serve our market. So when I speak, like I spoke here yesterday in Gilsoft, People say, well, I haven't heard of Bellevue University. How come you guys are involved in this? Who, who are you? And uh, it's, uh, one of the factors is that we're driven by our markets. We're driven to innovate. So we reach out. My, I'm a former GE executive. And we reach out and work with corporations in particular on such things as helping the Home Depot develop new supervisors, we have education programs with Home Depot, with Verizon, with First Data, uh, with SunTrust, the banking entity out of Atlanta. And those, those organizations seek to collaborate with us in an education model that brings the best that they have with the best that we have. So those are some corporations that we work specifically with. I'll go to San Antonio on April 24th, or uh, week after next, and talk about a collaborative work for helping veterans uh, mm. be candidates in development for USAA. And, of course, USAA is the premier provider of financial services for active duty and military personnel. So those are some examples of organizations that have worked collaboratively with an educational institution to bring the best of the both for their employees. Oh, that's great. And how about some of the telecom companies like Wireless, Accenture? Are they getting into this in a big way? Uh, Accenture, interesting you bring up Accenture, and you asked the question earlier about why don't corporate executives better understand how to impact their human capital. And not to be nasty to the finance guys but and gals, but our models, our financial models, don't help the CEO understand how to do the human capital investment. So one of the questions you and I have talked about is, who are some of the organizations that actually measure the impact of their learning intervention? We do that at the Human Capital Lab. I, I run the Human Capital Lab at Bellevue University, and we actually do on, on the website uh, www.humancapitallab.org. It's all one word, humancapitallab.org. We actually post studies, and uh, one of the groundbreaking studies is with Verizon Wireless and a fantastically visionary executive there named Dorothy Martin. And Dorothy has been a leader in providing to her executive leadership measurements about their tuition assistance program. Verizon is very uh, committed to helping individuals get an education. We have two collaborative programs with them, one in retail in the retail stores work and, in the, and another one in the call centers. And we actually measure the impact of our learning intervention. The one that you mentioned is Accenture, and Accenture knows how important human capital reinvestment is and actually has financial models to evaluate the return on the learning that their executives are engaged in. So they're another example of a, of a leading organization. Boy, that's powerful. And 
we we've heard statistics about the cost of having to replace a good employee and I would think people would have a lot more loyalty to a company employees would have a lot more loyalty if they're being able to continue their education while they're there so that's really got to help lower employee attrition have, have they seen that yes and and that's a that's one of the great myths in corporate america today and if, so one of the takeaways for the for the listeners of your program is there was some research uh, back a number of decades ago that basically concluded, well, I don't want to, this is now speaking from a corporate perspective, I don't want to educate my employees because when they're educated, they're more likely to be hired away by our competitors. That myth, that single myth, probably does more damage in the human capital arena about anything that I can uh, think of. We have done that work. We have done the work with Verizon Wireless about what is the implication of education, so supporting education of their employees. The reality is they're more likely to stay than to depart. And we do a thing, a very interesting thing from an education point of view. So let me just take a minute to share it. Please. The tuition assistance programs at corporations or what we call opt-in, as, as opposed to training, which is a top-down dictated. So let's just stay with the tuition assistance part of corporation. What happens is the employee has to opt-in to qualify for those benefits. In other words, they put their hand up and they say, I'm interested in getting an education, both to advance myself and to make a contribution to the corporation. So in a program like we have with the Home Depot, because it's contextualized and focused on the Home Depot priorities, when an employee puts their hand up there at the Home Depot, or at Verizon Wireless is another example, let's take Verizon Wireless. When they put their hand up and say, yes, I want to take the PR, PRSM program with Delvey University and use my tuition assistance benefits to gain this education. What they're really doing is they're expressing their motivation to be a part of the corporation. Because the program is targeted in making them a better executive for that organization. So the point is, when you have that opt-in structure as opposed to a top-down requirement, you're already calibrating the motivation component of the employee. And it's when they put their hand up and say, yeah, I'm going to learn how to be a better Verizon Wireless executive, they're basically saying, I want to be here. I want to be a better employee. I want to be more capable. And so it increases their likelihood to stay as opposed to make them more likely to leave. And so that's really interesting because I do remember hearing that line and it didn't make sense to me either. I'm wondering, so when they take these courses, are they open to more than one company within the course? Or are they mainly people from Verizon all take the course together? I'm just curious. They do. They do. Oh. In, the, in the Verizon programs, both in their call center operations and then the retail operations, which are two areas that we, we at Bellevue really kind of target the first transition to management. So the Bellevue University is not Harvard. It's not Duke. It's not Stanford. So we couldn't compete with the transition from vice president to CEO. And that's where those Northwestern, that's where those high prestige universities compete is in the executive transition at the end of the executive process. We, again, we, we're not, we, we have not been well known, although we have received a, a large number of corporate 
uh, Education Award, we focus on the first transition when it comes from the individual, what we call the individual contributor, to the first level of management, which is typically a supervisory role. That's where we're looking at. So to your point at Verizon Wireless, these are individual stores, young men and women on the floors of Verizon retail outlets that are putting their hand up and saying, I want to take the what we call PRSM program from Bellevue University because I'm interested in leadership opportunities at Verizon Wireless. And those programs are all what we call cohort. They study together and they're only executive or they're only employees from those organizations. So Verizon Wireless program, it's only Verizon Wireless. It also has the advantage that they talk about real problems and real issues that are operating in their business. So they are unique to those organizations that they're designed for. That just sounds amazing for a few reasons. One, you, you're hitting a much bigger, I would think, a bigger swath of people. Um, there's many more people at that level moving up than there is, mm-hmm. you know, at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, there would be some bonding created, I would think, that these people going through this together would want to stay because they've just studied with some of their co-workers. And so it's a great start for building good teamwork and collaboration we were talking about. It just really sounds amazing. Um, I'm, I'm happy to hear that that's happening. And it sounds like, I mean, if I were in that position, I would want to do something like that. Um, yeah, and the point is on, on the on the retention question, you you mentioned a very important part of this. So here's what's happening in an organization. Because the baby boomers are leaving and organizations stripped out middle management, there are not there's not a pipeline. The real challenge for the corporations is the gap between the exiting highly experienced leadership and particularly flatter organizations that have been Verizon, Home Depot, Walmart. I mean, all these are all organizations that are relatively flat. They have lots of people at the operating level. Their challenge is they got to get, they have to, they have a number of things. First of all, they have to identify who are the candidates to be good leaders in the future. So you're talking mm-hmm. about the cultural bonding. So the single mom who's at the cash register at, at, uh, it could be Walmart. It could be it could be anywhere, and ha- had to take that job because they didn't have educational opportunities initially. And is working with the organization. It's fully acculturated. They've been there six, seven, eight years, and they are fully aligned with the with the, the social network, the community, the business model. The challenge for the corporation is they have the good potential people in the organization. They need to get the education to those people. And so mm-hmm. rather than trying to go out and recruit them from Harvard or, or some, because they're not going to go to work in that position, look at the people that are in the organization who are already committed to the organization and get the education to them. That's what Verizon Wireless does. Well, is there any kind of pre-qualification? So there may be people who say, I want to move up, but they really just don't have the right natural abilities? Or does this pretty is- much anybody get to go? Well, this is back to an educational model. Interestingly enough, what's happening in colleges and universities is, and this is recent, this is the last few days, the really high prestigious universities, Stanford, Harvard, Yale, are rejecting 95% of the applicants. And one of the reasons is 
because it's easier to apply and people feel a, a near panic about the job issue. So what they're doing is, and this is for parents as well as young people, they're focusing on the high prestige universities as a, as a career strategy. And mm. as a result, there's a lot of people that are being rejected because they can only accept so many. So the point is, what we do at Bellevue is we're what we call open enrollment, which means that they have to have a, a high school degree and they have to have some, some uh, capability on the application side, but, they are, but it is open enrollment. And our view is that if you want to have a shot at it, we're willing to help try to help support you. And then we hold them accountable for performance in the classroom. So it's much less of the pre-qualifying screening aspect as it is about setting up a learning environment where people can be the best that they can. So do they get actual training and practice in in leading teams and um, kind of doing, a, I guess that would sort of obvious, but maybe you can tell me. Um, well, sure. Is that kind of the nature of it? Yeah. Sure. So, so we're working with a, with a target program. I'll go to the Home Depot. The Home Depot has come to us and said, we have a challenge as our supervisors are transitioning, our individual contributors are transitioning to a supervisory role. So you have individuals, and this, this transition is very important in organizations because the, the attributes of leadership, the two things, for example, that we're focused on are business acumen. How does the business mm. work? What's the business model? How do we make money? What are the things that we need to be looked at? Where's the data? So there's, in this particular case, there's what we call business acumen. How does the mm-hmm. business work? So that people that we're asking to leave understand how does this thing work? And the other attribute that we are really renowned for is leadership, and that's because we've been involved with officers and, and airmen from Offutt Air Force Base. We're an off, a, a, a one mile from Offutt. In fact, I just got off of a telephone call with the Brigadier General uh, at the 55th out of office. So the point is that the second part is leadership. How do you take an individual who has only been responsible for themselves and begin to mold them and, and develop them as leaders, which have all kinds of aspects to it, but what is good leadership in terms of value setting and communication and, by the way, collaboration that we talked about. So our leaders in our future organization need to have a collaborative leadership style as opposed to a command and control style. And those are some areas that we have in those education programs. Well, that's really powerful. So we are up on another break. And you mentioned the military. When we come back, I'd really like to find out um, how the, why the U.S. military ranks so high in your opinion. But we need to take a break. My guest is Mike Eccles. And you can learn more about his work at www.learnprosper.com that's where he puts up daily news and he has a blog called Buzz Today and when we come back we'll talk a little bit more about this topic um, the, the skills built, skill building and how the military does that but we also then will talk about his new book Your um, Future is Calling and so we will be right back From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here, and I'm with Mike Eccles of Bellevue University, and we're talking about human capital investments. And just before the break, Mike was sharing about some of the companies that do work with Bellevue around developing leaders, uh, Walmart, Home Depot, Verizon, taking the people that want to just get into a supervisory role and the skills that they would need and developing their business acumen and their leadership skills. And Mike, you mentioned the U.S. military, and I'd love to know what does the U.S. military do that ranks them so high with regard to human capital investment? So, Olivia, what they do is they start, and I talk about this in my book, uh, Your Future is Calling, and that book deals with some of the things that the military also does. Uh, it's available, the, actually the introduction to the book is available at www.futureiscalling.com. So what the military does, and the, what I talk about in my book, is they start with who the person is. So first of all, the U.S. military has very high standards. Not everybody, in fact, the majority of U.S. citizens couldn't even qualify to be a part of the U.S. military. So that kind of the heritage that the military is only the kind of the dumping ground for the rest of society is absolutely not true. They're very sophisticated. It's an all-voluntary organization, and they're very selective in terms of people that actually enter the military. So the selectivity is item number one. Item number two is the first thing they do is they evaluate and assess the individual. So they have a set of instruments, what I call in my book, who you are. And uh, the who you are is about we as human beings have things that we do well. So Olivia and I have shared about our work uh, in past and how we've come to be where we are. But the who you are part, the military starts with. So the first thing of a qualified recruit into the U.S. military is that they're assessed for who you are. My comment and suggestion to everyone in a civilian life is that's the place that you need to start as well. So if you have a child, for example, that's getting ready to go consider going to school, rather than go to school and do what I call major, 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 
there are a number of instruments out there, and the U.S. military uses some of them, to, to start with an assessment of who you are. So Myers-Briggs, what's called strong assessment, uh, are examples. Uh, Gallup's SF-34 are all examples of, of instruments that help assess the individual. The military starts there. So they, they start by calibrating the capabilities and talents of the individual, and then they lay out a career plan. They, get, make, they have options for their job placement that fit who they are, and they then invest heavily in training and development. So virtually everybody in our U.S. military are in continuous training and development. That's in contrast to our corporate priorities, which are the first thing that gets cut in the corporate priority is the training budget. And then I talked about the education aspect, about I'm afraid to educate them because they'll leave. So back to the U.S. military. First thing is assess who they are, and then there's a career path, a, a set of occupational choices. And again, I talk about this in my book a set of occupational choices, and then the support and investment in the training to develop those leaders and those, those individuals in that organization, and the, and the training is continuous and ongoing. That's amazing. And I really had that opinion, uh, especially before the Iraq War, I think, there, they weren't as discriminating. But when you saw how... That war was not predictable. I did start hearing about how soldiers were being trained to make decisions on the fly rather than having to wait for the command and control. Is that one of the aspects that's really changed? Yeah. Absolutely. It's back to that exact same thing we talked about in the advice to civilian organizations. It's a great example. It's what combat today is about responding to the circumstances, to the intel. It's not just big combat units that the commander sits in a command post and directs the tanks out to the west or whatever. They're units that go out and they're trained to be responsive to their environment. By the way, the composition, this, this myth that our military is the, is the dumping ground for people who can't work anyplace else, is simply not true. The educational mm-hmm. level of the in, entering the military personnel is higher than the general education level of the general population of the U.S. economy. It's not those that can't work anyplace else. It's those that are selected that. So back to your question, what the, the U.S. combat situation, or the global combat situation, are very similar to what our companies are facing. It's distributed, so they all carry high-tech communications. I have a good friend who was a Marine intelligence uh, forward unit for artillery, and the, and the complexity of the gear that he carried is incredible. So they are trained to be responsive to a changing external environment. That's exactly what our companies have to do. So that a salesperson that's in Singapore can, can accumulate the intelligence about what's going on and make a decision about a distributed decision. That's exactly how our U.S. military is operating. That's how the training is developed. Boy, I feel safer already. <laughs> so... I, so let's talk more about your book. So I, my son, wh- one of my sons is right now a stay-at-home dad. He's really great at that. But he's, he's got a degree and he's looking to get back into the workforce. Um, how, what would he get out of your book? What would be some of the things that you could help him figure out as far as 
re-entering the workforce, building his skills. He's good at technology and he's a musician. So maybe you could take that as an example and talk about how he would use your book. Sure. So the traditional way that education choices have been made is select the institution and then, and I'll talk about 18-year-olds. I, I was certainly with this. I'm from a family that didn't have any education at all. So I showed up at Carnegie Mellon's front door. With, <laughs> they just showed up. And so our colleges and universities have historically been about finding themselves, about our, our children finding themselves. The reality is that our world is too complicated, moving too fast, and, and education is too expensive to do that anymore. So the traditional way, and I talk about this in the introduction, the introduction to the book that explains this is available free. Any listener can go to www.futureiscalling and download the introduction of just exactly what I'm going to explain. So rather than take universities and then what I call major, 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 because they go in and they take general education and they try psychology, they find out psychology is not one, they go to marketing, so rather than do that sequence, my book says, start with who you are. So your son, for example, has immense musical talent. One of the interesting things about musical talent and the things that motivate him about music are also the things that would make him a very good technologist, a good uh, systems person, a programmer, uh, a, a very analytical person. And that may not be obvious. It may seem like music is so much different than, than, say, a technical career. So the first thing the book does is suggest the individual reflect and get input on who they are. And then the next thing they need to get is information. Just like the combat unit in our military, they need to get external intelligence about career opportunities. And the second thing my book goes to then is, what's called O-Star-Net, and the O-Star-Net is actually O and then the asterisk, elevated asterisk, and the NEP. It's a government website. It lists immense information about careers. What would they actually be doing? What's the knowledge that's necessary? What does the day look like? What's the job forecast? So the book talks about assessing who they are and then job opportunities from OSTARnet, and then decisions about what university might have the programs they want. So it reverses the decision and starts with the person. And in your sense that your son has very unique talent and attributes, but it may not be at all obvious for him about how would he map that to a career, and then in turn, what school should he go to to get the education. Is a lot more of this education available virtually today? Online is actually, and it's, it's kind of spoken derogatorily because of the, uh, the, the uh, controversy around for-profit universities. For-profit universities saw the implications of technology, established online programs, and now there's kind of a stigma about online. Bellevue University has been online since 1997. We are experts at it. And learning, I will, tell you, I will tell you that learning is more empowered in an online environment. It's not for everybody. It has to do with somewhat with style, but from a pure learning point of view, online is actually harder and more rigorous than face-to-face class. That's very interesting. And so I think, too, it speaks to the fact that people are opting in for this, and they know it. maybe their career depends on it, or, um, or maybe they're just more motivated to make it successful. So well, it would it would fact, seem like it would yeah, self-select people. 
Well, it's back to your son. Your son is an adult. He has a family. He can't show mm-hmm. up every Tuesday at 10 o'clock on campus to sit in a lecture hall. Plus, it isn't highly motivational. So the reality is the majority of learners in the U.S. economy today in higher education are non-traditional. They're not the 18-year-olds that go to campus. They're the minority. The majority are exactly your son. And your son needs an option that's a, that, that it's a powerful learning platform that fits his schedule. He can't mold himself around the campus and, and going to class and sitting in a lecture hall. Plus, because of his, uh, his who he is, he isn't going to be motivated in the classroom sitting and listening to a lecture. He wants to be engaged with something that he can actually get his hands on and interact with, and that's what an empowered learn- online learning platform does. Wow, that's great. So you had mentioned, um, or I I guess I was thinking about how sometimes colleges are expensive and uh, that can be hard to manage. We have about three minutes left. Can you share maybe what some listeners can do to get help navigating the cost and and the debt? Yes. The most important decision about managing the debt is the choice of the institutions. And I, you know, I talk about this in the book. So when I go through who you are, career choices, information about universities, so there's data about graduation rates on every university in that state, how many grants and scholarships they, they get. It's a government website. It's called collegenavigator.gov. It has all the information about every university, what courses they have, what their graduation rate is, how many grants and scholarships were given. So those, that database needs to be looked at and then choose the university. Choosing the university, first of all, having a high-prestige university says more about the student than it does about the university. There are lots yeah. of great universities in the United States, and picking the university needs to be about how it fits the person, not so much that, oh, I went to Harvard, and therefore my life is simple. Well, it, it isn't, because... You have to start with who you are. So let me just go to the financial side. In, in higher education, and we're coming with, a, with an entity called Smart Degree. It's a, it's a new way of approaching this question about what college you go to. The choice of college is very important. Here's one of the factors. How many credits will they transfer? So if your son has an associate's degree, does the university accept the associate's degree to transfer into credits for the bachelor's degree? Some universities won't do that. They won't accept this credit. So he needs to be looking at, well, will the university that I'm considering for the program I want <laughs> accept my credit? That's very important because if they don't accept the credit, you have to do the work over again. So we've got 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Clep and Dante's, there's a whole host of things. Again, the book talks about how can I control the cost and the debt. It's at the front end of the decision, not the back end. Well, thank you. So I encourage everybody to go out and get the book and read the free chapter on www.futureiscalling.com. And the name of the book is Your Future is Calling. Mike Eccles, thank you so much for being my guest today. I hope you'll come back and visit us again. I'd love to, Olivia. Thank you. So next week... My guest will be Leslie Pratch, PhD and MBA. And this is very exciting for me because Leslie brings together two of my favorite topics, leadership and predictive modeling. 
In fact, she's developed a model that predicts the success of a leader with a high degree of accuracy. And she currently advises private equity investors, boards of directors, and senior executives of both public and privately held companies in their leadership hiring decisions. So you won't want to miss this. For a full description of this show and access to all past shows, please visit www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. I'm your host, Olivia Parud, saying thank you for tuning into Quantum Business Insights. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week.